Today's episode with Professor Alex Edmonds requires a specific disclaimer. Near the end of this episode, Alex mentions a couple of specific investments as examples of funds that pursue socially responsible investing. None of the specific investments that he mentions are recommendations by me or recommendations by him for purchase by you. Always consult a qualified investment advisor who knows your circumstances and can do investment due diligence on your portfolio on your behalf before making any investment decisions. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 134 of APM Success. I'm very excited today to be welcoming a special guest, Professor Alex Edmonds. Alex is a PhD in financial economics from MIT. He's someone I know personally from our days back in the city of Brotherly Shove, back in the East Coast. He was formerly a tenured associate professor of finance at Wharton. He's now at London Business School. I could easily fill a whole episode length with his CV, but he has done an immense amount of research and is an expert in the area of what does it look like for companies to grow profits as well as act ethically and make society better. And so he's here today to talk about how do you invest in a world where companies, some are doing good things, some are doing not so good things. How do you invest intelligently in a way that aligns with your values? So Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invitation, Justin. It's great to be here. Great to reconnect with you. And uh, one thing that I'll mention, one of the reasons that I have such immense respect for you, Alex, and the work that you've done, in addition to the the research and the respect of your peers, is the persistent accolades that you've received at Wharton, at London Business School, as a teacher who stands head and shoulders above many others in the way that you communicate concepts to students who really adore you, from what I understand. So I, I appreciate that part of you just as much as how smart you are. And I'm excited for our audience to enjoy that this morning. Thanks. Well, I really like the idea of not just doing the research, but disseminating it to a practitioner audience. And that's why I really appreciate this opportunity uh, to talk to a, a big audience that I might not normally have access to. So thank you for having me on. Yes. So, you know, as I described a little bit as we were getting ready, what I often find is when I'm working with physicians, doctors practicing medicine, they're working in this place where it is a there's values involved. There's ethics and there's doing good in your community. And there's also huge swaths of healthcare that are fraud, that are abuse, that are negligence, that are abusing employees and like taking everything to the, to the nth degree of profit maximization, often at the expense of the whole rest of the ecosystem. So I'm curious, you know, in your work, what types of dynamics have you observed or what types of, what are the forces at play in something like as big and hard to understand as healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So, so often what we think is that the value that a company creates is given by a pie, and you can split that pie either in the form of profits to investors or value to society that might be fair prices to customers or fair wages to workers. And you might think that if you want to make a good investment decision, you want to invest in a company that squeezes as much as possible out of the pie for themselves. And if the pie is fixed, 
The only way you can do that is by trying to give the others as little as possible. So you might want to invest, let's say, chewing pharmaceuticals, which was um, which was headed up by Martin Shkreli. He increased the price of Adara Prim by 55 times. Why? Higher prices means higher profit for, 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 for um, investors. And so you think, well, we have this ethical dilemma. Well, on the one hand, I do need to get investor returns because that's going to be sending my kids to college. But on the other hand, if I do that, then automatically I'm going to be investing in companies which are then price gouging customers or mistreating their workers. But instead, what a lot of my research suggests is that this is not necessarily an either or choice. The pie can be grown in that companies that treat their workers ethically, which treat their customers ethically, in the long term, they also deliver higher returns to customers. So while indeed chewing pharmaceuticals did get high short-term profits from its price gouging strategy, in the long term, this backfired, there was a huge reputational loss and so forth. And on the flip side, you can think about some other companies which might be more ethical than how they treat their, their customers. So going back to another healthcare example, if you take uh, Merck in 1979, they had the suspicion that they could develop ivermectin which was used to treat um, parasites and livestock to cure river blindness. Now, at the time, what was the incentive to develop a river blindness drug? Tiny. Why? Because this was suffered by some of the poorest people in the world in Africa and Latin America. You'd be better off developing a dermatology drug to sell to the US and the UK. But because they cared about purpose, they wanted to address this huge issue of river blindness. They spent eight years developing it. And once it finally got approved, they decided to give it away. Why? Because the people most affected by it were the company, were people who could not afford to pay for it. And you might think, well, this is something which is extremely bad for a company's profits. Why would I invest in a company that just gives its main product away? But in the end, what this led to was just a huge amount of trust in the company. Employees would go to this company over competitors with maybe higher salaries because they were wedded to this mission. And while that might seem to be sort of wishful thinking, or maybe I've just chosen two anecdotes here, my research tries to look at large scale data across hundreds of companies in different industries. And that does suggest in many cases, actually companies that are ethical also deliver higher returns to their investors. It's interesting you met and Mar- mentioned Martin Shkreli because he, you, you're probably aware, but there's this thing they call the Shkreli Awards, <laughs> which every year is the top 10 people who have exploited to the max, to an egregious extent, profiteering in healthcare. And so that list came out recently. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes. So for any listeners, APM success slash 134, I'm going to, we'll also link to many of the resources that Alex is going to mention today, as well as his book, Grow the Pie. If you want to check out the Shkreli Awards, that's an interesting little tidbit. Tell us, Alex, of some other things that you've observed looking at industries, looking broadly at companies that try to do good. You know, for example, Merck is a great example. I know in that the TED talk that you gave, you talked about George Merck and his, you know, kind of famous quote that medicine is for the people, not the profits. And that seems to be, to some extent, baked into the lifeblood of the founders. Maybe there's people that would question whether big pharma, the extent to which that's still true. But what other either threads or anecdotes stand out in your mind with the research that you've done to further illustrate this principle? Yeah, so what's really interesting was that this was something which I found across a variety of industries. So you might think, yeah, purpose really matters for healthcare, because we can see how healthcare does have a transformative effect on people's lives. 
But maybe for something like a, a retail store, really, that's not so so idealistic. Right, that that's a more um, standard uh, service. But interestingly, I found this was the case also for even for retail stores. So if you compare Costco and Walmart, at the time I did my research back at Wharton in the city of Brotherly Love, Walmart was paying its workers half Costco, and they made you wait two years before they gave you health insurance. For Costco, it was six months. So to any investor, to any finance person, Walmart is the better investment, right? They've got half the amount of costs. And yet what the research suggested was that over the long term, Costco did much better. And why is this? Well, because these are this is a very customer-facing organization. If the employees are really ha- happy and dedicated and fulfilled, this is going to be feeding through into, into the customer experience. Employee turnover is extremely costly. If people are more likely to stay, then that's also something which is going to be, be there. Now, while my research is generally on ethical behavior, the dimension of ethics that I looked at in my early work was employees. Now, yeah, the environment matters. We all care about climate change. But why I looked at employees is this idea of materiality. So in nearly every industry, employees are critical, right? So it could be, yes, a retail store, you might think, well, they're not as value-adding as the pharmaceuticals company where they're coming up with patents, but they're still very customer-facing. When I first released my study, the first company to get interested in this was McDonald's. And you might think, well, if there's any company which could implement the old way of working. Maybe it's McDonald's because the employees there might have much higher turnover. You're not so concerned about retaining them, but they realize, no, these are the people who the customers are are going to be meeting. You contrast that with the environment. Obviously, the environment is really important for some sectors, like, let's say, the energy sector. But for other sectors like tech, it's not so critical. So why I looked at employees is this was something which was important across all industries. And then to your question, Justin, about sort of what general trends I felt was this was not something confined to a couple of sectors like pharma, which you might think are naturally purposeful. It was something that you saw um, quite universally. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned as you're exploring the treatment of employees by companies, this garnered some industry interest. McDonald's reached out. I'm sure there were a host of others. Tell me a little bit about how your work has been received as you've unpacked, quantified, and examined these dynamics at play. Yeah. So thank you. So maybe I'll just first describe what the research found just in in, in a nutshell, and then what people's reaction to this was. So what I looked at was the list of the 100 best companies to work for in America. So that's a list of companies that go above and beyond in how they treat their workers. And even that is interesting, because often when we think about CSR or ESG or whatever you call it, People think about doing no harm. So we don't want to be in a scandal, let's say, where there's a strike or some injuries, but we don't want to go beyond the minimum required to avoid a scandal. But this said, no, let's go above and beyond the minimum and really make our company a great place to work. And so what I found was that companies in this list beat their peers in terms of shareholder return by 2.3 to 3.8% per year. And so over that 89, over that 28 year period, that's 89 to 184% compounded. So companies that treat their workers better, do better. And obviously I need to do things to suggest it's causation, not correlation. If you treat your employees well, then the company does better rather than you first do better and then you have money to treat your companies well. 
So, well, how has that been received, the idea that actually employee-friendly companies do better? I get two types of reactions. So one type of reaction is, well, that's completely unsurprising, right? That's kind of obvious. We, we thought that, yeah, companies should do better if their workers are happier. But even though that was obvious, it was really important for you, Alex, to document it. Why? Because the traditional view of how you treat your workers is you work them as hard as possible and you pay them as little as possible. Why was Henry Ford so successful? He invented the assembly line and that was something which forced workers to keep up with the pace of production. So while, yeah, it does seem kind of obvious, unless it is rigorously documented, and in particular by a hard-hearted finance person like myself, (laughs) rather than, let's say, a a professor of philosophy, then it's not something that people are going to act on. So I'm not going to claim people said, oh, this was revolutionary, this completely changed my view, but it sort of gave support for what they thought was true anyway, but they wanted to see it in the data. So so that's one common response. And the other response is is there are people who've had their views completely changed. So they used to think HR, that was a cost centre. Indeed, we want companies who control their costs. When I invest in a company, I'm going to look at things like dividends and profits and market share, not fluffy things like corporate culture. And this has really expanded their mindset. And in terms of the reaction, I've just done a project with a large global asset manager, which lasted a few months. And what they wanted to do was to find a framework that they could use to assess a company's corporate culture. So they buy all my research and say, yeah, we agree with your findings that we do want to invest space in corporate culture. Then the next question is, how do we measure it? Yeah, we've got the 100 best companies list, but we want to go deeper than that. So how can we go about assessing this? That is fascinating. I'm sad that we only have the time that we have because I I feel like I could talk about this for hours. I'm curious, you mentioned the, the list of the 100 best. I'm curious the breakdown between public and private or if we're talking about all public, because obviously in a privately held company for listeners, this is not a company that's beholden to the stock market and all of the, you know, the shareholders that could be big institutions and mom and pops who buy the stock in that company. It's just maybe a person or a family who would have a lot more power to dictate culture. And they don't, they don't have quarterly earnings calls where they have investment bankers like yelling questions at them and very perhaps adversarially, but they may have more ability to do what they want to. Whereas public companies, a lot of scrutiny, everything is very transparent and a lot of pressure for quarterly earnings maximization. So did you see any sort of difference between public and private and did it surprise you at all? Yeah, this is really interesting because people often think that it's much easier to be an ethical, personal company if you're private, right? Because if you're publicly traded, you do have these small shareholders who who focus on quarterly earnings. And I do think there is a difference. I do think there is some truth to that. But I also think that these differences are, are overplayed for the following reasons. Sometimes, even if you're a publicly traded company, your shareholders are large shareholders who are taking seriously things like ethics and corporate culture. So I just mentioned a large investor. They invest in the public markets, but they realize that if they want a sustainable investment that delivers long-term value, they need to take this seriously. One anecdote is in 2016, I think it was, Ford hit record profits. And then the following year, it got its second highest profits. Yet the stock price kept going down. 
Why? Because the investors didn't care about the quarterly earnings. They said, you're not investing enough in self-driving cars and electric cars. So we are, are going to be selling your stock. So even in, in the public markets that you do have investors who are long term oriented. So, yeah, there might be some short term people, but company people now know that the value of a company is based on the long term. That's why Tesla, for example, makes very little profits, got massive value because people see what, what the long term value is. Also, people think, well, in the private markets, you have control, you can control your culture, as you were suggesting in, in the question, Justin. And that's true. But a good car has both an accelerator pedal and also a brake pedal, right? So you do want some outside challenges. So if you've got full control over something, there could be blind spots. So you've seen companies, let's say Uber with Travis Kalanick, where, yes, you had control, but that meant that the culture was a, a negative one. We can think about WeWork. We can think about many of those companies as well. So I do think we do want to balance in, in that if you have a private company, is there challenge there? You could get it if there's a large private investor which is backing you and has a seat, a couple of board seats. And even if you're a company which goes public, which you might need to as you expand and need more capital, are there ways of replicating what's good about a private company? For example, making sure the CEO's pay is tied to the long term, not quarterly earnings targets, making sure that you do have large investors who are monitoring you rather than your shareholder base being completely dispersed. So as I mentioned before our we hit record, many of my you know, clients and friends, physicians in general, they are values-driven people. And they also observe a certain set of values, either good or bad. And they, they observe both at the same time in healthcare, in their employment situation, in their practices. And they're frequently very interested in investing in alignment with values or expressing their values in the way that they invest their money. More and more, I'm seeing people who don't want to just say, I'll buy the index fund or I'll buy whatever active management strategy, but rather I want to do something that expresses a particular value around you know, diversity, carbon emissions, certain other environmental factors or, or other things. So as I, I think my in my observation, this is just a rising tide, more and more people, maybe it's a generational thing. This is very important to young investors. So for people interested in this and wanting to sort of take the first couple steps in understanding what does it mean to invest in a way that supports my values, what how would you orient them? Thanks. That's a really important question, Justin. And I think before I answer that, there are two main reasons why somebody would like to invest ethically, would like to follow their values. And I think it's really important for me to distinguish them because often these two reasons are conflated. So the first reason for why you want to invest in accordance to your values is because you think that your values will pay off. So ethical companies will pay off better in the long term. A company that treats their workers better will indeed deliver higher returns. And I think there is indeed a lot of truth to this, which is what my research is trying to show, that many ethical companies do indeed perform better. However, this is not the case for every single ethical dimension. So this is what goes back to the question of materiality that I mentioned earlier. If you are ethical on a dimension which is really important for the business, let's say employees, that does lead to higher long-term returns. But if you're being ethical on, let's say, an immaterial item, then that might not actually lead to long-term returns. That could be a distraction. So let's go back to climate. Yeah, I absolutely think climate is extremely important. And it is absolutely material in energy and transport and so on. But maybe if you're a tech firm, if you're a leader, if you're best in class in terms of your climate impact, 
that doesn't really help you because that's not the key thing that we care about in tech. Maybe it's things like cyberbullying, cyber addiction, and customer privacy, data security, and so on. So you often see this argument that doing good always does well. Ethical investing always pays off. But the harsh reality is, is the inconvenient truth is that ethical funds don't on average beat market. Why? Because you don't want a company which tries to jump on every single ethical issue that, that's out there, but just to focus on the couple which are really important. So like back in Philadelphia, when, when I was there, I got invited to do like loads of different charity work, often being treasurer, being the finance person. So can you serve on this charity or that charity? If I was to have served in all of those 20 charities, I would have probably been useless to everybody because I, I would have just been spread too thinly. Instead, I said, no, I'm going to be head coach of the American Cancer Society Philadelphia because that's linked to my expertise, which is in endurance athletics. So I chose to focus on a couple of things. So I think what's really important is for, for if you want to invest in order to improve your long-term returns, you need to make sure that your company is targeted on the couple of areas that really matter. So that's the first reason for why you want to invest ethically is you think that that's going to improve returns. Now, the second reason for you why you want to invest ethically is that you think you can change company behavior. I think I'm supporting a company which has a diverse management team by buying its shares. I'm boycotting a company that is polluting the environment by selling its shares. This, unfortunately, is something which I think is really misportrayed. Why? Because if I'm boycotting a company, if I'm selling out of a fossil fuel company, I'm not depriving them of any capital. The only way I can sell is if somebody else buys. And similarly, if I was to buy into a company with high diversity, I'm not really supporting them because the only way I can buy shares is if somebody sells. So this is really different from a customer boycott. Customer boycotts work. If I'm not buying a product from a, a company, then it doesn't have my revenue. Whereas when you're buying shares, you're buying secondhand shares. So why is that interesting? Because in some cases, it might be that the best way to enact change is actually to act in the opposite of your values. For example, to buy a problematic company and try to turn it around. For example, engine number one, why did they take a stake in Exxon and elect some climate-friendly directors, it's only by holding the shares were they able to take a seat at the table. So going back and closing out my long answer with a medical analogy, well, as a doctor, you would never say, look, all my physicians, are, all my patients are healthy. I'm a great doctor. No, you'd actually want to treat the sick patients, right? Because you're all as the doctors to take the sick patients and make them better. And similarly, as an investor who wants to change company behavior, rather than just improve your returns, it might actually be better to work with some of these more troubled companies. That's a great point. I want to zoom in on that a little bit more. So maybe from a corporate governance standpoint, can you explain what it means to hold a certain percentage, have the ability to appoint a director and use that as a mechanism to drive change within a company? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what are your rights as an investor? As a shareholder of a company, you have votes. So you can vote on things like the election of directors. So engine number one was able to vote for three for three climate-friendly directors. Or you can vote for the pay scheme of the executives, because every year there's a, a say on, uh, on pay vote or every couple of years, and then you can vote to approve their pay scheme or not, whether it's, for example, tied sufficiently to long-term rather than short-term performance. Now, you can either do that vote directly if you own the shares outright, or if you own the shares through a mutual fund, then often it's the mutual fund that will vote on your behalf. 
but only if they hold shares will they be able to vote and hold the management into account. And I think what's interesting to note is that voting is not the only way that companies are able to enact change. It could be that the company tries to do some persuasion. So they might go, so the investor might want to do persuasion. They might say, well, actually, we think that you should phase out plastic straws, for example, or plastic packaging. And what is the incentive of the company to do that? Well, it's the worry that if they don't actually follow through, then the investor might vote against them and vote out the directors. And so this is, again, why it's sometimes important to have skin in the game for people to listen to you. If I was just to divest and boycott a company, then if I speak to management, they're not going to listen to me because I don't really have the ability to hold them to account. Now, that's not to say that in no case is divestment optimal. I think it's good as a last resort. So let's say you try to engage with the company, they keep being resistant. You try to vote against them, but maybe the other, the other investors don't care, they just care about short-term profits. Then rather than banging your head against a brick wall, it is good for you to sell your shares and maybe buy another company, which might be more receptive, but I would rather see divestment as a last resort and engagement as the first port of call rather than the other way around. And that's very different for many investors who say, look, I'm such a green ethical investor. I'm not involved in any fossil fuel companies. Again, I'd say that's the analogy of a, of a, a doctor saying I'm such a pure doctor. I don't have any sick patients. I don't think that's what your responsibility is. Interesting. And that is you know, counterintuitive, not only among investors, but I think people in our industry, You know, if they there's these funds that have filters that exclude on the basis of X, Y, or Z factors. Environmental impact is a good example. And what you're saying is that that is ineffective to drive change. Absolutely, because you, you need a seat on the table in order to get people to, to, to listen to you. And I so why is that the old practice? I think it was because people didn't realize that actually, if you're selling a company, you're not depriving them of capital, somebody else is buying. So they used to say, look, we are selling out, we are, we are, we are depriving the company of capital, but that, that, that's not how, how things work. And so people are now going to be much more nuanced about what it means to be an ethical investor. It's not necessarily walking away from problems, it's actually trying to confront these difficult problems by holding shares and having these difficult conversations. Are there any other common misconceptions or things that perhaps surprise the average investor when they discover them as it relates to the topic at hand? Yeah, so I think another issue which people misunderstand is the role of ESG targets. So what companies often say is that, oh, we are such an ethical company, we are tying the CEO's pay to diversity or climate change metrics and so forth. Because they say, well, the ultimate test as to whether you're an ethical company is do you put your money where your mouth is, do you pay according to it? Let me go back again to the medical analogy. Do you pay doctors according to patient survival rates? I don't think most hospitals do that. Like hospitals do care about saving lives, but they're not linking the doctor's pay to the number of lives saved. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, you hope the doctors are intrinsically motivated to save lives anyway. That's why you have them. If they need to be paid for it, then you've probably got the wrong doctor. And then number two, there could be a whole host of unintended consequences. They might not take the most difficult cases where it might not actually end up in a positive outcome. And I think this is the same for executives. What you'd love is an investor who is just not an investor, sorry, an executive who really believes in the mission of the company and is intrinsically motivated. And then if you paid them according to ESG targets, you have this concern about hit the target, miss the point. 
I could focus only on that ESG dimension being targeted. For example, if you're paid according to the number of ethnic minorities on the board, which you might think personally, I would be somebody from benefiting from, from such a policy, that would be a problem because you could put in a token ethnic minority, but not do anything to change the broader corporate culture. Is this a culture which encourages dissent, allows people to be themselves? Am I developing diversity on any dimension, not just ethnicity, but also gender, also socioeconomic background, also disability and so on? And am I really building diversity from the ground upwards or just parachuting a, a token minority um, from, from outside to occupy this board seat? So that's one thing which I, I, I just like people, I think, incorrectly will evaluate the ethicality of a fund based on how net zero you are, how few fossil fuel stocks you hold. Similarly, companies will incorrectly evaluate the ethical ethicality of a company by saying, well, how many ESG targets do you think you're, you, do you think you'll pay to? I think that could lead to the unintended consequences of just teaching to the test. You only focus on those dimensions being targeted. You mentioned the you know you're working with an institutional investor to quantify to some extent something as squishy as company culture, which is we all agree is very important and you can observe its effect. You know it when you see it, but it's also it's hard to see it on a balance sheet or a cash flow statement. So can you describe without obviously giving away anything proprietary? Can you describe a little bit about the way that you approach that challenge of we understand corporate culture and healthy corporate culture is important and it should drive investment, but it's difficult to discern from a financial statement. Yeah, and this is a really important point more, more generally. So people often ask the question, how do we measure culture? How do we measure, measure ethicality and sustainability? And I often say you can't measure it, but you can assess it or evaluate it. And people might think, well, what's the difference? Well, evaluation and measurement and evaluation and assessment that involves some quantitative factors, but also some qualitative factors. For example, like how do you choose which company to work for? You won't just look at the pay and benefits, the hours and the quantitative factors, but you might other or look at things such as the, the pride of the job, the camaraderie with your colleagues, how great the boss is as a mentor. And when you choose between those companies, you will have a framework to decide, well, what is important to you? So there might be some employees who think, well, I would really love a lot of freedom and autonomy. There might be other employees who say, no, I want a lot of coaching and, and, and guidance and, and support. And so similarly, what we try to do with this um, large asset manager is to think of general principles of things that we can ask management. So it's not completely nebulous. But it's, so it's guided, but it's something where we're going to look beyond just the numbers such as gender pay gaps or diversity statistics or turnover. So what are the specific dimensions that we might explore? Well, I think I can describe a few of them without actually giving, giving it away. So one thing here might be just the empowerment. So what do they do in order to empower their employees? And you might think, well, that's an easy question to answer because any company will say, oh, we give employees a lot of independence and so on. But then a follow-up question will be, well, can you give me specific examples of changes that you've made to your processes or new product innovations, which came from employees. And that's something that some people might be able to answer and others might not be able to. So what we try to do is come up with a framework of what good looks like, just like a prospective employee would say, well, what does good look like for me as a, as a job? And then we try to come up with some questions to try to drill down as to how does that translate into a particular qualitative questions we're going to be asking. Can you give a couple more examples of companies that have either really pressed into these principles on the positive side or have been negligent 
as it relates to treatment of employees or any other material factors as you describe them and sort of how that unfolded over time? Yeah, so I'll use the example of Google and I know that this is often a very common example, but um, hopefully this will just just drill down and illustrate some of the points that, that I'm trying to make. So Google, while I'm choosing them, they are often number one in the list of the best companies to work for. And what makes them great is, I think, just the different view of workers. So the old view of workers is that they're just like any other input. So let's say raw materials, the goal is to squeeze as much out of them as possible. You'd never want to leave some raw materials unused. So you want to get everything you can out of them. And that was the view of workers. Let's try and squeeze as much of them out as possible, just like the assembly line and Ford. And so that still exists today in terms of micromanagement. So uh, when I was at Morgan Stanley, that was my my first job out of university. Uh, And this is just not unique to Morgan Stanley, but any investment bank bosses were sort of got pride in knowing that they work for analysts 100 hours a week and so forth. So what does Google do? Well, what they used to do, certainly, was they gave 20% time to their employees, where they said, you're going to have one day a week where you can explore whatever you want to. And this was complete freedom. And to many managers, that would be suicide because the employees are just going to goof off and, and mess around. But no, this is, we, we trust them. And if we are a purposeful organization as Google, then they will actively want to contribute to the firm in their one day off. And so this is why they were able to come up with things like Google Maps, which they would have never had the chance to do this if it wasn't for uh, this free time. Now, Justin, you said have an example of not just the good, but also the bad. What was a bad example was Wells Fargo. So Wells Fargo had the approach of targets and hitting targets that we've just discussed. And what they had was the idea that every bank employee should try to sell eight products to a customer. Regardless of need or want, let's try to sell eight. And if they didn't meet their targets, then the shortfall was added to the next step. And why did they come up with eight? Not because of any scientific analysis showing that eight is the right number, but because it rhymes with great. Literally, that was it. (laughs) The CEO had a strategy called Go For Great, G-R-E-I-G-H-T, and said, let's sell eight because eight (laughs) is great. And uh, and then that led to then opening fake bank accounts because they wanted to hit the targets. And so that was another problem. Go For Great. That is incredible. I'm I'm glad that I now know that little bit of financial history. It it all makes sense now. (laughs) Yeah, but you you, you might think fake bank accounts, that's something so crazy. Could anybody be driven to do that? But when you have such a short-term target obsessed culture, that, that then you do you have this. Yeah. And for anybody listening, just you know, the context here is Wells Fargo has been under regulatory scrutiny the last handful of years, and it's been one business line after the other, testifying in front of Congress, many large fines, and and all as a result of this toxic culture, it sounds like. I'm curious, your observation, Alex, of you know, I think if I'm a company and I work, I'm like Google, I work hard, for example, to give my employees significant opportunity for personal enrichment. There's this effect that that creates of attracting people with intellectual curiosity and perhaps diverse skill sets. And there's a certain caliber of human that that then brings to your organization, which then I would imagine has a, a positive impact as far as organizational capability. Do you, is that something else that you have observed? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is why I think employee satisfaction, employee engagement is so important, not not just to motivate the people that are there, but to also recruit new people. So if you are a recruiter, if you're coming to an organization like Google, where people are really excited about what they're doing, that will attract a certain type of people. Maybe there's other people who think, no, I will get my fulfillment not from my job. My job is just a job. Let me just do my nine to five and and get home. And there's nothing wrong with that. It might be that you have family commitments. It might be that there's other goals of what you want to get out of out of your life but if you are an organization with a lot of other driven people that will also attract other driven people and it might not attract um, people who, who have different priorities and so that's something which is so reinforcing it is also why corporate culture can be such a comparative advantage so if the only thing that you needed for a great corporate culture is a few ethnic minorities on the board Anybody could replicate that and, hey, presto, you've improved your culture. But if these are are more long-term things, which is, well, what are the ways that people interact with each other? Are people actually really driven to to further the organisation, even if it's not rewarded in my contract? That's something which is really difficult to change because that's something which is ingrained in the company's personality. And it's also a vicious circle or a virtuous circle because whether you have engaged people or disengaged people, you're going to be attracting people of that same ilk. So for our listeners who are taking this in and thinking, I want to be more values oriented and approach my investments with more nuance and more understanding of what my money is doing. It's I understand it's working for me and I hope it's growing, but I want to be more scientific, more thoughtful in that approach. Can you recommend either a couple of resources or a couple important considerations for someone who's beginning to understand what this means for them? Yeah, absolutely. And this could be to invest in ethical funds. But then the question is, well, which ethical fund to look at, given I earlier mentioned that the average ethical fund doesn't beat the market. So there's two things that you can do. First, you can look at a thematic ethical fund, which looks at a particular theme. And that theme should be something that you care about from a values perspective, but also the research should suggest that this is linked to long-term returns. For example, if you believe in the employee satisfaction study that I mentioned, one fund is called the Parnassus Endeavour Fund. Its ticker symbol is P-A-R-W-X. I've been an investor in the fund for 15 years. So that invests in companies with good workplace practices. You can look at its long-term returns. have been very strong over those 15 years. Alternatively, rather than looking at a fund which focuses on one particular dimension, you could look at general ethical funds. Now, nearly every asset manager will have this because ESG is, is now very popular. So how do you look at the differential between them? Look at their long-term performance record. But you can also look at a few other dimensions, which is the number of stocks that they hold. So if an investor holds 30 stocks, then it probably is able to get into the weeds of everyone, understand it carefully, engage with management. But if it holds several hundred, it probably is spread too thinly. Often also, companies will have their engagement or stewardship reports, which will say things such as how examples of how they've engaged with the company, what change was made. Others will also advertise the resources that they have to be able to, to, to navigate a lot of these tricky issues. So I serve on the investment committee for Royal London Asset Management. We've been in the space for about 18 years. And one of the things that they'll highlight is we have this advisory board consisting of a few people. So I'm their governance specialist. We have one gentleman who's an expertise on on science. So when we have things like the ethicality of gene editing, he'll advise on that. One lady who's great with the environmental perspective and another lady who is great from a, a corporate ethics perspective. 
Now, other investors might not have those resources, and then therefore you might think, well, on these really nuanced questions of what is ethical or not, what are the trade-offs, how are they able to navigate that? So you can look at that as being something that a company will have as a potential resource. Excellent. Man, I'm learning tons. I really appreciate this conversation today. Is there anything else in conclusion that you want to share to our listeners, Alex? Yeah, so what's interesting is that I I come to this question of business ethics, not as a professor of philosophy or ethics, but as as I mentioned earlier, as an ex-investment banker and a professor of finance. So I look at this from a a hard-hearted, rational, data-driven approach rather than a purely moral and ethical approach. So clearly morals and ethicals are really important, but we do need to generate long-term returns because this is what's going to send children to college, this is what's going to fund insurance companies and so forth. And so if you look at a dispassionate observation of the data, ethics does have something behind it. So this is not just wishful thinking or too good to be true. It is backed up by the data. But all I will suggest is that we do need a nuanced look at the data. Not everything, which is ethical, pays off in the long term. And the the sort of blunt and seemingly powerful approach of divesting from all unethical companies, that is not actually as effective as buying some of them and engaging with them. And thinking about investments beyond just monetary profit is an important consideration, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think why? Firstly, it's for for, for ethical reasons, why we would like the companies that we are investing into to do good, but also things that might not seem to be monetary profit in the short term do manifest in monetary profit in the long term. And so that's the core of my research, right? So what is the return to Merck developing Mectazan and giving it to free, for free to cure river blindness? In the short term, it was purely a social return, saving people's lives and saving people from blindness. But in the long term, that led to financial return because it bolstered Merck's reputation. It attracted a lot of employees. It attracted a lot of shareholders who actually wanted something beyond just financial return. And those shareholders provided the monitoring and the support and the advice and so on. So often these things which are non-monetary end up becoming monetary in the long term. Excellent. We'll wrap it up there. Professor Alex Edmonds, thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. Thanks so much, Justin, for having me. It's great to be here. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success. Today's podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. Nothing you heard today should be construed as advice for you or your specific circumstances, especially as it pertains to taxes, investments, legal or healthcare compliance questions. Always consult a qualified expert who knows your circumstances in order to get appropriate professional advice.